My name's Debbie Steves, and I'm here this morning to read you our scripture, which comes from Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together all in perfect unity. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of these scriptures. From Miss Debbie, come on now. We love you, Miss Debbie. Now, you were, uh, for a while, weren't you um, traveling all over the place, serving as a nurse in, in various prisons, right? What do they call you there? Gangster Grammy. Man, it's the truth. We are so glad you're a part of the, the family. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Nick, in case we haven't had a chance to meet. A couple of things real quick. Um, I had a lot of fun last Sunday night at the dinner. Yeah? Did y'all enjoy that? It was great. We got together to talk a bit about um, what we're going to do with the property over there on Bush River Road and what it's going to take. It's going to take all of us. Um, if, you, if you couldn't make it out to that dinner, no worries. We're going to try to schedule uh, a, a couple other ones so you can come and hear a bit more. Um, and if you didn't pick up one of the, the little booklets, we have some of those available out there, I think, at the Connect table as well. Before I get into the message, something I'm super excited about, next Sunday... Um, one of my heroes is going to be here sharing a word with us, uh, the Reverend Dr. Michael Slaughter. Isn't that a great name for a pastor? What's his name? Reverend, Reverend Slaughter. Isn't that great? He's going to slay it too, I had to say. <laughs> no, but he, um, he was the pastor at the church where Nate Gibson and I served together in Ohio, and he has so shaped us. I mean, he is probably somebody who's had the most influence on me in terms of a pastor, a leader, um, of a faith community. And I'm telling you right now, there are thousands of people, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of people who are more alive today, physically, spiritually, uh, because of the way in which God has worked through his life. And so he's going to be here sharing a word with us. I just want to strongly encourage you, if you're watching online, just make an effort to be here. I promise you, you don't want to miss that Sunday. Did you dig? You dig? All right, cool. Well, this morning, I want to talk about how to cultivate a love that lasts. Right? We're in this series called Peopling. Right? We've been talking about uh, meaningful relationships, talking about relationships in all sorts of different directions. Last Sunday, we talked about boundaries. Right? How do we establish some boundaries with some of those uh, lovable but difficult people in our lives? Y'all got some of those? Yeah. Well, today, I really want to zero in on this. And I want to talk about cultivating a love that lasts, a love that can handle the bottom of the U-curve. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? Right? Research shows when you chart out marital satisfaction over the years, it tends to look like a U, right? Or like a, a check mark that I wrote with my left hand. It's like, right? It sort of starts over here, but then, of course, there's that long middle where it dips down low. And so many people, this is where they quit. But I want to talk a bit about how do you stay the course? I want to lean some more into that. Because the truth is, falling in love, that's the easy part. Am I right? All you need to fall in love is a pulse. But like staying in love, staying there, that's the hard part. 
I think that's something that we all long for, though. Just this past week, we had a guy at the house giving us like an estimate on what it's going to cost to replace some windows, right? And so he's there like talking about windows, and somehow we get into this conversation about how he's doing in his life. I'm not even sure how he got there. I guess it's a sign I'm in the right line of work, right? But in the course of things, he tells me his parents, you know, after being married for more than 35 years, just decided to get a divorce. And this is a grown man, has a wife and kids of his own, but you could tell, despite that, this is rocking him. And he's kind of asked, like, it makes you wonder, does anything ever last? Right? I mean, falling in love is the easy part. Staying in love, that's, that's the hard part. And yet, it's something that we long for, isn't it? I think it's something that we still believe in, despite our cynicism, our jadedness, our bitterness. We still believe it's possible. And more than that, man, we all really want it. That's why it's so inspiring to see a couple who's been together for 30, 40, 50 years. Like, when you see that, you can't help but admire it. So I kind of want to lean into this a bit. How do we have that? And I, you know, if you're here, no matter your relationship status, I promise you it's going to speak to you. I'm going to be directed towards romantic relationships, but the stuff we're getting into applies across the board to all of our most meaningful relationships. There's stuff here for you, so pay attention, all right? But can I pray for us right now? Whew, God, I just can't stop thinking about that line in that song. Tear down the walls I've built up. And I, just, I know there's people here today. That's exactly what they need you to do this morning. They drove here in silence. They didn't talk to each other. Probably slept in different beds last night. I pray for them more than anybody else. That you just zero in on them, Lord. On all of us. Make, just soften us in all the right ways. Say something to you this morning that we need to hear. Something that changes us. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my wife and I, y'all know Lindsay, right? Hubba hubba. My wife and I, we had a long-distance relationship the entire time we dated and all throughout our engagement. We didn't live in the same town till we lived in the same one-bedroom apartment. It was like 700 square feet. And because of that long-distance relationship, we did the majority of our premarital counseling after we got married. Right, like during the first year of marriage, we did a little bit beforehand. But again, you're long distance. You know, we talked with the guy who was officiating our ceremony. We read some books. But the church where I was serving at in Ohio had this really great strategy for for preparing couples for marriage. They would partner you with a mentor couple, couple who'd been married for a while, had a really vibrant marriage, and you would work through this resource together. It was awesome. But but a big part of this pre- preparation process is they had you take an assessment. That sort of told you about your expectations going into marriage and kind of highlighted a few spots that you might have some trouble, right? So this assessment told Lindsay and I that we were off the charts in something that it called idealistic distortion. We were idealistically distorted. That's what it said, which basically means that we were both looking at our relationship and one another through rose-colored glasses. Like in a sense, we both thought that the other person was way better than they actually were. Which, of course, is easy to do when you don't live in the same town, right? When you don't see each other very often. I mean, every time we'd see each other, it was exciting. You know, it's like, I hadn't seen you in like two weeks. You're amazing, right? Like, that was wonderful. But then when you're living in the same 700-square-foot apartment with only one bathroom, that idealistic distortion took quite the beating. <laughs> our first year, well, actually, our second year of marriage is when it really got pretty rocky. When these two worlds start to collide. Right? We both had grown up in different worlds and we had different rules, different ways of doing things. Like in her world, there was a rule that like shoes belonged 
in the shoe closet, right? Everything had a place. For me, in my world, shoes belong wherever you just happen to take them off. There was some collision there. Like, you know, in her world on Monday nights, you watched The Bachelor. In my world on Monday night, we watched football, right? And so there's, there's some conflict here. Like, these two worlds were colliding. The idealistic distortion thing, it, it really did. It took a beating. But that phrase, idealistic distortion, sounds like a bad thing, doesn't it? Distorted. But something I've begun to discover when you really get into what makes relationships work, I'm beginning to realize idealistic distortion isn't a bad thing. It's not a problem to overcome. In fact, I think it's something that we have to rediscover. I argue at the heart of any sort of meaningful relationship that goes the distance, what you'll find is some expression of idealistic distortion. I think it's at the heart of what God longs for, to be like the foundation of meaningful relationships. I'll show you what I mean. You know where we're going to start. Genesis. Here it is. I love going back to the beginning, to the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2. It just grounds me. I think it's a great place to begin. But, you know, Genesis 2 really kind of zeroes in on some things. Genesis 1 is this big picture perspective, you know, of creation. In Genesis 2, it really zeroes in on the humanity part of things, like the human relationship. In verse 18, you were told, you know, God creates his first human, puts him in the middle of this paradise, tells him to enjoy it and take care of it. In verse 18, God makes an interesting observation, though. God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Right? So God is noticing something. God is observing something that this first human has a longing and a desire for companionship. To, to know and to be fully known. So God recognizes this, right, in verse 18. But then notice what happens next, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So just think about the flow here, right? God recognizes that Adam is lonely, but doesn't immediately do anything about it. Interesting. What's God do instead? Gives him a job. Go and name all the animals. Now, I mean, it's metaphor, but like, let's think about how that's a big job, right? That's not over in like 10 minutes. I mean, this is something that probably, you know, it's, it's meant to communicate longevity. I mean, this is a big assignment. It would have taken a while. And notice the observation at the end of it. No suitable helper was found, which means every creature Adam runs into and identifies and names, it's, a, it's not quite it. This animal can't know me in the same way that I long to be known. So the, what happens to that loneliness? Kind of gets cranked up a little bit, right? And so Adam has this longing and desire for companionship. And God doesn't immediately do something about it. It's only after Adam names the animals that God then puts them to sleep and forms the woman from his side. What is this about? Why would God do that? Why would God recognize a deep need for companionship but then wait so long to do anything about it? You see, I think what's up here is God wanted to create within Adam not only a desire for companionship, but a deep sense of appreciation and gratitude for the other. And apparently it worked because when Adam first laid eyes on Eve, he, he recited the first poem, 
Here's what he says. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Isn't that romantic? (laughs) Put that in the Hallmark card. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of Adam, out of man. More More literal translation would be something like this one at last. See, I don't think Genesis 2 is interested in biology, the science of humanity. I think it's more interested in the art of humanity. What's it mean to be human together? I think God longs for the the foundation of any sort of meaningful relationship to be this sense of appreciation and gratitude and even sort of wonder towards the other person. You know, Adam says, woman, right? I like like to think that he said, whoa, man. You don't have to laugh at that, but I'm glad you did. But the image here, though, when you read through this, it says, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib or the side. He'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The image here is of God as like an attendant walking Eve down the aisle, which is my favorite part of any wedding. It's when the couple sees each other for the first time. Right? I love that part of the wedding. It's that whoa, right? Whoa. Whoa, God doesn't just want us to have a partner, but God desires that the foundation of that relationship be this deep sense of appreciation and respect. It's like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? This that famous passage we get about love that I get asked to read it about just every wedding that I do, right? One of the descriptions about love in verse 7 of chapter 13, it says that love always protects I believe that this is what the author is talking about. True love, the kind of love that lasts, is the kind of love that guards that sense of awe and wonder, that protects the woe, that stays a bit idealistically distorted. I remember reading about this study a while back. It was so formative for me in terms of how I approach you know, romantic relationships, significant relationships, but it was done by a bunch of researchers from several different universities who were interested in identifying what's the one thing, like what's the biggest thing behind really successful marriages, like what, what makes them work, right? And they wanted to go about it a bit of a different way because for the last 100 years in the world of like social sciences, things like psychology, the assumption was that good was the opposite of bad. Okay, And so this would approach how they would study things. Often what they would do is study the bad examples of something, right? and then they would just reverse the findings. They would sort of tell you, here's what not to do. And so when it came to things like marriage, what they would often do is they would just study all the people who were miserable in their marriage, kind of figure out what do they have in common, and then tell us, hey, don't do that. Okay? And so what, what research found based on this kind of approach is that people who are in really unhappy relationships, they often had a very like unrealistic, unreasonable view of the other person. They didn't know them that well. They didn't know them as well as they thought they did. And so the assumption based on this is that when they started studying these marriages that were really rich and really connected, they would find, well, they probably have a much more down-to-earth sense of who the other person is, right? Much more realistic idea of who they are. That's not what they found. It's actually the complete opposite of what they found. What they found is that couples who were happy in their relationship had an even more unrealistic view of one another. It turns out they saw one another as way better than they saw themselves. And so they would give them these, these like assessments and they would ask, like, rate one another based on each other's strengths and weaknesses. And almost every single time the partner would rate the other higher than they had rated themselves. So again, they thought higher of one another than they thought 
of themselves. Here's what they said about this. They said, so essentially the spouse in a highly rewarding relationship consistently credited their partner with qualities that they didn't think they had. I mean, in a sense, what they found is that love really is blind. That love stays idealistically distorted. It protects the woe. Now, before you go dismissing this as a bunch of like nonsense, like this is exactly what you did when you first met the person you're with. This is exactly what you did, right? Remember when you, when you first met them? They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't even fart, right? I mean, they were just like, they were perfect. They were amazing. What you would do is you would, you would look at them and you would minimize their negative qualities. You'd maximize their positive qualities. So much so that somebody you cared about, like your mom or your friend, came to you and you're like, hey, I got to be honest. I'm a little worried about them. Like, they do this. You'd be like, nah, it's fine. You would interpret it through a very generous, am I right? This is exactly what you did when you first met them. But then what happens? Get to know them. We get disappointed, right? We get hurt. We get let down. And slowly but surely, we stop seeing them through, we stop celebrating them for who they are. And what do we get really focused on? Who they aren't. What they don't do right. What they don't get right. And I argue this, this is when intimacy really begins to break down. And this is when things like resentment and bitterness start to creep in. If anything I say today like resonates with you, if it lands at all, here's your next step. Go get some John Gottman material. John Gottman is the research psychologist. He's probably considered to be like the world-renowned expert on all things uh, marriage relationships. But I mean, he's got so much great content out there. But he's famous because he spent almost 40 years studying more than 3,000 marriages like observing them long-term. And, and he got famous because, I don't know this is something you want to be good at, but he could predict, like if he spent less than 15 minutes with a couple, he could predict if they were going to get divorced or not, and his prediction is like 95% accurate. Right? I mean, he could just tell quickly. Right? And Gottman says that the number one indicator for divorce is what he calls contempt. Contempt is a complete lack of woe. And it is fueled by long-simmering negative thoughts about somebody's partner. It shows up in things like overt sarcasm, name-calling, eye-rolling, mocking. He said the reason it's easy for him to see is because it affects your body language. And I've seen this before where you're talking you know, with a couple, and as soon as one of, the, one, of the, one, people, one of the person starts talking, the other one just immediately, it's like their whole body does an eye-roll. They're just like, it's contempt. It's contempt. And this is the number one cause for divorce. It's when we lose that sense of appreciation, that sense of wonder or gratitude. But love always protects. So how do we do that? Right? How do we begin to sort of guard that? Well, I think the passage from Colossians that we just read earlier has got some really great ideas. Especially verse 13. The whole passage is great. But verse 13 for me is where the magic is at. I mean, this stuff is gold. Listen to this again. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In fact, let's read that again. Let's read it out loud. Can we do that? I want to hear you all. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, the New Testament has several different words for our one word for forgive in English. 
Right? they got several different ways of talking about it. When we hear the word forgive, we tend to think of that difficult process of dealing with like a wound, right? Somebody hurt us, and we got to figure out how to like let it go. That's not the word that's being used here. The word that's usually used to describe that kind of forgiveness is a theomy in the Greek. The word used here, though, is a chrysomenoi, charisomenoi, which has as its root word this word charis. Some of you remember that word. It means grace. What's grace? It's gift. What this is talking about is being generous towards each other, particularly when we have reasons not to be. You see, the heart of the kind of love that protects, the kind of guards that goes the course, that kind of love, you know what it is? It's generous. It's generous, especially when we have reasons not to be generous, when we're in the midst of conflict. But what I found is in our closest relationships, the most intimate relationships, often we're anything but generous, right? We don't keep short accounts. What do we keep? Long lists. Y'all got that list? That filing cabinet list, all the things that they've done, right? You keep track of what you do compared. Yeah, am I the only one? Y'all got your lists? Man, most of the time with people that we're the closest to, this isn't just romantic, this is friends. We don't keep short accounts, we keep long lists. All the ways in which you've slighted me, you've hurt me, you've let me down. We love to keep track of that stuff. And then what ends up happening is that just sort of creeps in. We see everything through that lens of what we're owed. And we often lose sight of what, they, they probably got a list too, don't they? Well, we don't think about that much. But here, here, here's where this really plays out. Newsflash, if you just met somebody, okay, this might be new. For those of you who've been married, you know what I'm talking about. At some point in your relationship, your partner is going to let you down. Can I get an amen on that? Or plug in your friend. Your friend is going to let you down, Right? There's going to be a gap in between what you thought they were going to do and what they actually did, right? Your expectation is not going to get met. You thought they should do this or act this way, but in reality, what did they do? They did something else, right? They acted. So there's going to be a gap. Man, the, the, the health and the strength of that relationship has so much to do with what you put in that gap, how you interpret their behavior. Why did they do that? Couples that don't make it, relationships that don't make it, they're incredibly stingy in their interpretation of why their expectation that wasn't met. People who are in meaningful relationships that actually last, they're incredibly generous in their explanation of their intention, of why they didn't meet your expectation. Like, what do you do with the gap? Do you assume the worst or do you believe the best? For instance, when he leaves the toilet seat up and you get a rude awakening in the middle of the night, what do you do with that? Do you think he was just doing something to be mean? Just trying to get at you? Maybe he forgot. See the difference there? How do you interpret their behavior? How generous are you in interpreting that? I think this is a matter of giving one another the benefit of the doubt. Giving each other the benefit of the doubt. It happened for, with us a little while back. Uh, I can admit that I'm a bit sensitive. Some might call needy. Yeah. It's truth. And you can imagine, you know, I like to talk a lot, especially when I'm working on a sermon. Man, you do not want to be around me when I'm working on a sermon. It's like every conversation is just one step away from being about my sermon, right? 
It's like you bring something up. Oh, that reminds me. I'm thinking about talking. And so my wife has to put up with that a lot, right? And one of the things that's like a constant place of friction for us is I don't feel like she listens to me. When I start talking about something I think is important, I can just tell in her body. She's not really interested. She doesn't care. So that sets me off. I'm really touchy, really sensitive to that. Well, a while back, she, I can tell she's, she's on the computer. She's watching something. It was a video for a Bible study that I think she was going to get into. You know, and and she's, her back's to me, and she's, she's looking at the computer screen. And I can tell, oh, she's, she's watching a, a video about a Bible study. I'm working on a sermon, right? That's a really easy connection. I'm like, I got something important to tell you about. And so I go to talk to her, and she doesn't even turn around and recognize me. She just sits there with her back to me the whole time. And after about 15 seconds of hearing myself talk, she's not listening. She's, to- she's totally ignoring me right now. And so I just get so huffy. I just get offended, and I just sort of storm off, right? You've been there. I'm, just, I'm upset. A little bit later, she can tell because I'm grumpy. I'm walking around grumpy. I'm just huffing and puffing. She's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, what do I say? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing's wrong with me. What are you talking about? Because I'm rehearsing. I'm, re- I'm not ready to have the argument yet. I'm rehearsing. You ever do that? You like have the fight before the fight? You're like, you know, you're making up the points. I'm going to say this, and then she's probably going to say that. And then once she says that, ooh, I'm going to, like, drop the hammer. Boom, done, out. So I'm, like, arguing before the argument. If you haven't done this, you should try it sometime. It's a really great way to waste a whole bunch of energy, right? And so I'm just, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, I can't wait. This has been building. i got so many things to say to her. And so I wait for the last time. She, what's wrong, right? What's going on? Why are you pouting, right? I said, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Earlier today, I tried talking to you about something I thought was really important. When you were watching that video on the computer, right? You don't even turn around and look at me. And she just, she went like this. She said, Nick, I had earbuds in. I had my earbuds in the whole time. I didn't know you were talking to me. What did I do? Eventually, she's like, (laughs) instantly deflated. Just, you know, sometimes I just had a bad day. So we can be so short with people in our lives. They do one thing. We write them off. Do you have any idea what they just went through that day? Do you have any idea the kind of things that they're... you see how stingy we can be towards each other? But people who, like, people who go the course, especially in marriage and romantic relationships, but I think this is true of all relationships, is when we're generous towards each other. When we try and think of the most generous explanation for why they did what they did, and then we actually try to believe it, man, the kind of influence that has on our closest relationships. Brene Brown, my pastor, she's found in her study, you know, the happiest people she, she, she interacts with is based on science, research, the happiest people she knows. You know what they believe about other people? They're doing the best they can. It's one of the things they have in common. They believe everybody's doing the best they can. And she even thought that sounded like a bunch of garbage. Her counselor was the first person to tell her that. And I love when she went and talked to her husband about it. She asked her husband, do you really think everybody's doing the best they can? He had the best answer to that question. He goes, I don't know, but I'm better off believing they are. Isn't that the truth? Man, you want to have shallow, short-term relationships? Be stingy with people. Do it. Promise you, what you're going to find is a trail of shallow, short-term relationships where you just move on to the next person so they offend you about something, and then you go on to the next person. Meaningful relationships, they stay the course because they're generous towards each other. So the next time they're late, the next time they make a mistake, they let you down. Instead of taking note, keeping track, assuming the worst, throwing it in their face, be generous. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And what I found is that a healthy person 
will respond to that in a positive way. They'll see it as an attempt to move closer, and they won't take advantage of it, because that's what we're afraid of, aren't we? We're going to be taken advantage of. If I'm just nice and generous all the time, they're just going to take advantage of me. Healthy people won't. Unhealthy people probably will. But what healthy people will do is they'll see that, and they'll move towards it. They'll reciprocate it. So guarding the woe, it's about generosity. Y'all say generosity. But it's also about flexibility. Flexibility. In that passage from Colossians chapter 3, we're told to bear with each other. Did you catch that? Bear with each other. The word for bear, is, it's a great word. It comes from the Greek word aneko, and it means to have patience or to endure. I love that. Endure each other. I mean, basically they're saying, put up with each other. Just put up with each other, which I know sounds kind of meh at first, but I think it's great because honestly, sometimes that's what it comes down to. It comes down to just putting up with each other, making room for all of the ways in which they frustrate us. It's interesting. Most of the things we fight about in our closest relationships, I promise you, this is true. Most of the stuff we fight about is unresolvable. It's not going to get fixed. I mean, they found 69% of the conflict in most of our important relationships is over stuff that isn't going to change. Personality differences. Ways of seeing the world. Almost 70% of the stuff you're fighting about right now in your relationship, it's not going to change. And that can either like discourage you or encourage. For me, I find it a big relief. Because what it means is my marriage doesn't have to be free of conflict in order for it to be healthy. Does that make sense? It takes the pressure off a little bit. We don't got to figure some of this stuff out. We just got to learn to live with it. I mean, that's honestly what it, bear with each other, put up with each other. You see, I think it's about moving from this need to change or fix the other person. And sometimes it's about learning to adapt and accommodate to them. Now, hear me, hear me out. I'm not talking about abuse here, okay? Right? There are, sure, some unresolvable conflicts that are deal breakers in a relationship. Things like fidelity, things like safety. If he's hurting you, you need to leave. Did you hear me? Okay? So there are some deal breakers. But most of them aren't. (laughs) Most of the things are not deal breakers. They require us taking, learning a lot of flexibility. I mean, just this past week, I was talking to a, a kid, a guy who's not a kid anymore, but he was in my youth group way back in the day. He just recently got married, grown up. That's weird, right? He's grown up now. He's married. And he was just talking to me about some of the struggle he's having in this relationship because his wife is like a, a type A, you know, like really like detail-oriented Anybody in the room like that? You can relate, like a one on the Enneagram, right? So super detail-oriented, and he's like, man, whenever we got a lot on our to-do list, we got things coming up, she gets super stressed out, and she's just kind of hard to be around. Like, she gets really critical, right? And she just wants everything done right. She can just be sort of, and I was kind of relating to him a little bit. I'm like, yeah, you know, Lindsay can be like that. Like, man, like, she's the type of person, when we go on a beach vacation, she does the grocery shopping beforehand. Anybody else do that? And it's like, it's supposed to be helpful. It's like, this is going to be great. But it stresses her out like the whole week before we're going. I'm like, why don't we just get groceries? Two different, totally two different types of people. But he was like, and this is a question he asked me. He's like, how did you get her to change? (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) I didn't. I just gave her room to do it. Early on, I got so offended by it. took it personally. But it's like you become flexible, you give people room to just, just let them be who they, some of this isn't going to change. 
I've learned she's always going to be like that. Right? And when it comes time to it, I'm going to let her be like that. I just like, have, your, have your time, be stressed out, be worried about it. And then once you have it, you're kind of done. You're over it, right? Or for me, we are so different. She is disciplined. And like I said, everything's got a place and everything has to be in that place. Me? I've found my keys in the freezer more than once. Okay? I lose everything. Everything. There was like a two-week stretch. I lost my wallet and my wedding ring. Okay? I'm currently wearing a silicone wedding ring right now. Got five of them on Amazon. It's great. So... It's just kind of who I am. Now, we've, we've had to have, she not avoid these kind of conversations because they can be frustrating. Losing your wallet and having to get everything replaced, that can be frustrating. And so it's not that she's not allowed to talk about it or bring it up. We talk about it still. But she brings it up. It's not from a place of criticism or I don't have to worry about her accepting me. She's recognized, like, this is just part of who he is, right? And so, like, the other day I left my keys in my uh, pants that she washed. Couldn't find them forever. She finds them in the dryer, and she holds them up with this kind of smile on her face. Like, they kind of communicated, it's okay, but really? <laughs> like, both of those things go together. I'm not talking about avoiding conflict here. But there's things about that other person that are always going to drive you nuts. And sometimes we got to move from fighting about it. we got to convert that energy to figuring out how to accommodate to it. Their family is always going to be crazy. They're always going to drive you nuts. It's not like you're going to have one fight about it and figure it out. you got to shift. How do we accommodate to this? How do we set healthy boundaries? How do we make room for it? It requires flexibility. If that's something you want to hear more about, Gottman's got a lot of great stuff on differentiating between solvable problems and unsolvable problems. If that's something you want to learn more about, hit me up afterwards. I'm going to send you a bunch of great, great stuff to check out. Where am I at? I forgot. Ah, here it is. Last point. Some of you said, hallelujah, right? One more thought. One more thought on all this. Guarding the woe, it's about being generous. It's about staying flexible. But it's also about practicing gratitude. Y'all don't need me to proof text this, right? Find some Bible verse to prove that that's true. We all know it's true. And the scriptures talk about it from front to back. We're people of grace, aren't we? Grace needs gift. How do you respond to gift? Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Gratitude is so essential when it comes to having meaningful relationships that stay the course, fostering a love that lasts. Because here's the thing. We've all got positive and negative aspects to our personalities. You are aware of that, right? You are not as cool as you think you are. You're not. And so people who enter into meaningful relationships, healthy marriages, what they do is they have this habit of cherishing their partner's positive qualities while minimizing their negative ones. I, lo- I love how Philippians says it. Chapter 4, remember when we were in Philippians? But towards the end of the letter, he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see, here's the thing. Unhealthy and healthy relationships, they don't just get there by accident. They don't get there overnight. But they're the result of individual choices that we make over and over and over again. The result of these small, everyday decisions. That's why I don't buy it when somebody tells me, you know what? I don't think I ever loved them. I don't think I ever loved her. What I found is that is rarely ever the case. 
No, what happens is that this person is chosen for a long time to focus in on the negative aspects of their partner, so much so that now when they look back, they see the entire relationship through that lens. And so when we do this long enough, we even rewrite the past. And so when we look back, we see the early years through, this eye, through the eyes of contempt. You didn't just fall out of love with them. And it always wasn't the case, but it was the result of these patterns that get repeated over and over again. So here's the good news. You got to where you are right now, one decision at a time. The good news is you can get back to where you want to be, one decision at a time. One choice at a time. So I'm thinking about the couple who's here right now. You aren't talking to each other. You're not sleeping in the same bed, whatever it is. Here's my challenge for you. Even just this week. What if every day you made a concerted effort to notice and celebrate something about the other person? An effort every day. Something good about who they are, about what they bring into your life. Make an effort to name it. In fact, this week we're going to post a prompt every single day. So it's not just like some general, hey, think about something happy for them to know. Like something specific. We're going to challenge you with it every single day this week. It'll be on social media, right? We're going to put it up on Facebook and Instagram especially. But again, if this is something you need help with, Reach out to me. I can give you some great resources. But often what's helpful for some of us when we're in that place is to go back and remember. Pull out some old pictures. Retell yourself about how you met, how it all began. Go back to how it begins. I love the book of Proverbs where it says, may, you, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the spouse of your youth. Go back and remember how it started, how it really started. But it's about making an intentional effort to rewire our brain, to stop scanning them. You know, we, we often find exactly what we're looking for. If you're looking for reasons to be disappointed, you're going to find them. If you're looking for reasons to be grateful for them, you're going to find them. Guess what the happiest couples do? They minimize the negative. They maximize the positive. They practice gratitude like their life depends on it. If you're having a hard time, imagine what all of this looks like. Just look at the cross. What's that passage in Colossians? Forgive, be generous, just as God has been generous towards you. This is what it looks like. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and Jesus, God, has been so generous. And what I've found is I can't get too far away from this, like on a personal level. I cannot get too far away from God's grace towards me. What I found is the health of my most important relationships doesn't depend on what I know up here. It's about what I'm continuing allowing God to do in here. To keep me soft in all the right ways. To turn, my, turn me towards my wife, towards my friends, not away from them. And so more than anything this morning, what I want to do is I just want to invite you. Maybe, maybe that's where we need to start. Maybe you spent so much time over the last decade, I don't know, just turning away hardening your heart. Maybe what we need this morning is to invite God to do exactly what that song said. Tear down the walls that I've built up. Thomas, we don't got time. I'm just going to pray for us. Don't worry about it. I talk too much. But can we pray right now? I'm going to ask everybody, if you're here and this is you, just take your hands, hold them open like this and just put them on your lap if you want to. But this for us, we think this is the perfect picture of what faithfulness looks like. It's living your life like this with an open hand. And so maybe you're here and your heart looks like this right now. Maybe the invitation is for God to make it look like this. To just open you up a bit. To soften you in the right ways. Let me pray for us.
God, you have wired us for connection, for one another. But for all sorts of reasons, we can be so bad at it. We get in our own way all the time. And so I just pray that whatever was said today, whatever was actually from you, I pray, Lord, that it just lands on us, that it stays with us, that it sticks with us so that we can't forget it, that it just continues to, to, to work on us. But I pray for those of us who have just fallen into this cesspool of being stingy, that, Lord, you soften us up. Teach us to be generous and how we interpret their behavior. And remind us that that's exactly what you've done for us. We want to be people who believe the best about other people. Not just because it helps us have better relationships, but Lord, it helps us to live a more beautiful kind of life. And so rescue us from all of our smallness, all of our stinginess. I pray for those of us who maybe have become a bit rigid, Teach us to be flexible and give us the wisdom to know if this thing that we keep fighting over is something that we actually need to keep fighting over or if it's something that we need to sort of start thinking about. How do we, how do we just bend towards this? How do we fold it in? How do we learn to accommodate to it? Give us the creativity and the wisdom to do just that. And Lord, more than anything, make us into grateful people, people who practice gratitude like our life depends on it people who have this committed, diligent, disciplined effort to notice the gifts in our life, particularly when it comes to the people in our life. Help us to see them for who they really are and to never stop celebrating them for the gift that they are to our lives. Let's tear down the walls that we always like to build up and keep us soft in all the right ways. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't rush out of here because I want to be your pastor, okay? And messages like this, there's no way I can just tell you everything you need to know about these things, right? All of your next action steps. What I hope to do on a Sunday morning more than anything is just stir you up to maybe actually reach out and do something. And so if you're wanting to know if anything you heard today really did, it resonated with you, it landed with you, your next step is this, reach out to me, let me be your pastor, it means so much when y'all invite me into these situations and we get to work them out together, okay? So I'm just, that's my challenge to you. And again, the rest of this series is going to be dependent on you. I've asked you to use that email address. Remember that? Right? Peopling at EmmausChurchSC.com. Not want to use email me yet. <laughs> I know you got questions and I know you got topics. Use the daggum email address, okay? Hey, thank you so much for being here. It means a lot. I love you all. We'll see you next week.